Father God, thank you that you are a God who speaks and you have spoken to us through your word, through your um, prophets and apostles. Uh, we thank you for the uh, precious Bible, um, your word to us. Thank you that it uh, t- tells us about who you are and about your great plan, uh, your glor- glorious plan of salvation um, through your son. And so we pray that today, right now, you would soften our hearts, um, humble us under your word, uh, to hear it, to receive it, and to live in light of it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Naomi. Isaiah 26, a song of praise. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down, the feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. The path of the righteous is level. You, the upright one, make the way of the righteous smooth. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. But when grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and do not regard the majesty of the Lord. Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone do we honour. They are now dead. They live no more. Their spirits do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. You have enlarged the nation, Lord. You have enlarged the nation and you have gained glory for yourself. You have extended all the borders of the land. Lord, they came to you in their distress when you disciplined them. They could barely whisper a prayer. As a pregnant woman about to give birth rides and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, Lord. We were with child, we writhed in labour, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth, and the people of the world have not come to life. But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Go, my people, enter your rooms 
and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it. The earth will conceal its slain no longer. Chapter 27, Deliverance of Israel. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great and powerful sword, Leviathan the gliding serpent, Leviathan the coiling serpent, he will slay the monster of the sea. In that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I would march against them in battle. I would set them all on fire or else let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. Has the Lord struck her as he struck down those who struck her? Has she been killed as those were killed who killed her? By warfare and exile, you contend with her. With his fierce blast, he drives her out as on a day the east wind blows. By this then will Jacob's guilt be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the altar stones to be like limestone crushed to pieces, no Asherah poles or incense altars will be left standing. The fortified city stands desolate, an abandoned settlement, forsaken like the wilderness. There the calves graze and there they lie down. They strip its branches bare. When its twigs are dry, they are broken off and women come and make fires with them. For this is a people without understanding. So their maker has no compassion on them and their creator shows them no favour. In that day, the Lord will thresh from the flowing Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt and you, Israel, will be gathered up one by one. And in that day, a great trumpet will sound. Those who were perishing in Assyria and those who were exiled in Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain of, in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, thank you so much, Naomi. I, I think it's always great to hear the scriptures read well. Um, it's great to uh, read the scriptures, but great just to hear them read well. So that's very helpful, especially for a long passage. Uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your good word to us from the prophet Isaiah. Thank you that you've let us hear your word this morning. And we pray, Father, that your word would not just enter our ears, but would enter our hearts and would shape who we are, that we live for your glory and in ways that bring honour to the Lord Jesus. 
We trust you'll be with us now by your spirit as you always are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, a day is coming. A day is coming. And if you don't understand this, if you don't understand that a day is coming, if you don't live for this, this coming day, then I have to say there's a significant way in which you don't really understand the Christian faith. We are future-focused people. We are people who look to that day. Now, it's true. There's much in this day, much in the present, that we should give thanks to God for. Even though life is full of great difficulties for many of us, there's, there's often great pain, great struggles, great challenge, great suffering today. We know that personally in many cases. Even so, we still see and experience lots of good blessings, don't we? In our country, quite often, it's our experience that we have direct, uh, direct experience of freedom, peace, prosperity, health, safety, community, friends. Sometimes we lose some of these things. Sometimes we don't have health. Sometimes there isn't peace in our community. And yet we, we still do often have many of those things lots of the time. Right now, there's a lot that we give thanks for. Right now, there's a great deal for us to praise God and to celebrate because he's with us, blessing us in so many ways today. Similarly, we also have much we can look back on. We can turn our eyes back to past history and continue to give thanks. Uh, even in our own lives, there's so many good memories we have, so many things that we celebrate in the richness of our personal history. We have experiences that have been precious to us, but we also have great inheritances, don't we? Uh, cultural inheritances, inheritances as well as personal inheritances. Things that we have received from the past that are blessings from the day. And again, in Australia, in this year, at this time, we have a lot that we've inherited from the past. That's a great blessing. That's given us what we have today. Often at the cost, the sacrifice, the labour, the work, the decisions of those who've gone before us. And of course, most significantly, we look back 2,000 years to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to him hanging on that cross, and that once for all time, when he bore the sins of the whole world, took our shame, took our guilt, won for us a place with the Father, peace with God. We look back on that time and the forgiveness won. Now, all this is good and right. It's good and right that we recognise today's blessings and we celebrate them and we give thanks for God and we enjoy all that we have now from his hand. 
It's good and right and absolutely proper that we focus on the past and what's come before and all that we've received, especially what Jesus has done for us in the past on the cross as he died for our sin, therefore making us uh, right with the Father, giving us peace with God. However, however, if we do not also look to the future and have eyes fixed firmly on the future, we have not really grasped the fullness of what the Christian faith is about. It is a future-focused faith as much as a present faith based on things in the past. Now, the book of Isaiah was written thousands of years ago, hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus walked the earth. And its most direct, its most immediate audience is ancient Israel. It was written into that culture, that people in their time. Similarly, its most immediate references, as you read through the book, are to uh, not only Israel, but the ancient nations surrounding Israel. But in God's providence, the book of Isaiah captures significant eternal truths. It was written to those people in that time, in their particular circumstances, but saying true things about all people in all times, every place. What Isaiah does is lays out for us paradigms, ways of thinking, a worldview, big picture understanding of what God's doing now in history as well as what he did back at the time the book was written, at the time the prophet prophesied. What's captured in Isaiah profoundly is God's purpose for all people in every age. I was saying to someone just earlier this morning that, did you know the book of Isaiah is the second most quoted book in the New Testament after the Psalms? Do you know what that means? That means the writers of the New Testament thought understanding Isaiah was pretty critical to understanding the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. Isaiah informed that because Isaiah paints the picture of what's going on in God's world and gives us a context for understanding Jesus and what he did. The two chapters we have before us today are the conclusion of a long subsection of the book of Isaiah, a section that runs from chapter 13 through to chapter 27. And in these chapters, 13 to 27, we have God's word to the nations all around Israel. So God is speaking words to these nations all around ancient Israel. And these words are words of judgment because of the faithlessness of these nations. When we move through this section, we get to chapters 24 to 27. And they really speak to us about the final judgment that all people, including God's people, will face at the end of history. And the themes of these chapters, 24 to 27, are themes of the triumph of God, the salvation and the vindication of his people. And then when we get to our two chapters, right at the end of this section, chapters 26 and 27, the focus really narrows in to that day. And you might have heard, as Naomi read to us a few times, in that day was said. It's the first phrase in chapter 26. It's the first phrase in chapter 27. It occurs several times at the end of chapter 27 as well. In that day, in that day, in that day, 
These two chapters of Isaiah are talking about that day, that day which is to come, that future day of the judgment that God will bring on the whole world in that day. And as we read through these chapters, we learn some things about that day, that day that's coming. One of the first things we learn is that in that day, there will be a division made between those who are God's people and those who are not. Listen again just to the first few verses of chapter 26. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. The nation that keeps faith, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground, casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down, the feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. The path of the righteous is level. You, the upright, upright one, Make the way of the righteous smooth. There's a contrast there between, actually, it's painted in terms of two cities. A great theme in the book. A contrast between the strong city, which is the city of God's salvation, and then the lofty city in verse 5, which is laid low. In that day, the contrast between these two cities will be stark. One city will be the city of God's salvation in which the righteous nation will enter. The other city will be laid low and will be downtrodden. Now, I think we don't always like this idea uh, that there'll be a distinction between two groups of people made by God on the day of judgment. We kind of think it, it's harsh. Maybe even sometimes we think it's, it's arbitrary. Why would some people be in one group and some in another? Well, in the context of Isaiah, the way we understand this is by realising that the division is made on the basis of justice, God's justice. In ancient Israel, uh, and frankly, uh, for a lot of God's people around the world ever since then, injustice is a major problem that they face. God's people in lots of places, in lots of times, have suffered serious oppression, persecution, violence. Not just the kind of thing that we sometimes might experience where people think Christians are a bit weird or, you know, we're excluded from the office party or uh, some gathering of friends because, you know, we're the odd ones. No, no, not that thing, but actual oppression that results in people suffering, people even going to their death. And often precisely because they identify as God's people. It's because of their association with the Lord God of Israel that they suffer. But on that day, God will bring justice. God will bring freedom from that oppression. And God will deal with those oppressors. God will deal with people's enemies. Now this might happen in bits and pieces before that day but not in a substantial, final and full way. That is, even though the world's governments try to deal with some of these issues, you know, and the United Nations tries to deal with uh, injustices played out against different groups of people around the world, 
full justice will never come until that day. When that division is made between those two groups of people, it will be God setting the world to rights. It will be God saying those who were oppressed will be vindicated, those who were the oppressors will be judged for what they have done. And this is the reason that God's people yearn for that day. They yearn for it. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 26. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desires of our heart. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world will learn righteousness. When that day comes, we long for that day because everything will be set right. Lord, people will see that you are the Lord God. Your ways are right. And those who have oppressed your people have been wrong. I think this is a great challenge for us as Christians today, who many of us, though, as I said before, we, we do have sufferings and struggles in our life. That is true. But for many of us, we're greatly blessed. And I think there's a tricky thing here, isn't there? The more you're blessed today, the more we're blessed today, the harder it is to look forward to a day of justice and righteousness. The harder it is to long for a day when this age will be concluded. That is, we're not always looking and longing for that day because this day is actually pretty good. This day is all right. I don't really need another day. I'm happy today. I've got a full belly. I've got a warm home. I've got nice friends. What do I need that day for? That's the great challenge for those of us who are blessed. We have so much good from God now, it's sometimes hard to feel that we need God to come and set things right. Things are largely right. As I said, this is especially the case for Christians in the modern West for the last several hundred years. But it's actually not the case, as I said earlier, for Christians who are persecuted around the world. You see, I think sometimes we feel like this day is so good, there's, there's nothing more we could want from God. In fact, I even wonder if in some cases, I, I, I'm sure there's none of us, but I wonder in some cases if people are hoping that day won't come soon. You know, if that day comes, I'm going to miss out on so much. And there's this kind of strange idea that, that if God brings that day, if the Lord Jesus returns, well, that'd be terrible because I've got plans. I'm going to go on holidays. Uh, there's, there's a special family gathering I want to get to. I'm looking forward to my new job. Now, the classic example, of course, is the engaged couple. You know, uh, we've just gotten engaged. You're not getting married for six months. So, yes, come, Lord Jesus, but just don't come yet. And yet I think they probably tap into something that a lot of us feel in lots of ways. I've got lots I want to do in this life. But I think as much as it's right to enjoy the blessings and the good things that God has given us in this life, our, our engagements and marriages and family gatherings and holidays and so on, it's a problem if the good things we have today make us think that day is not where our hearts and hope should be. That day is not our focus. It might actually be really healthy and helpful for us to learn something from our sisters and brothers 
Christian believers who live in other parts of the world? What about our Christian sisters and brothers who live in parts of China or Syria or parts of the Sudan or our Christian sisters and brothers in modern Palestine uh, to say nothing of our sisters and brothers who've lived in that part of the world for many years past. They know what it means to look for that day. They know what it means to keep their eyes on the future. Maybe us knowing them better, having hearts for them and understanding them more will help us to live for that day as well and prevent us from ever sliding off into indulgence or distraction or laziness or something like that and shifting our focus to sacrifice, service, hope for the future and even increasing our emphasis on evangelism. I say evangelism because one of the purposes of the book of Isaiah, one of the reasons we still have it today, is because as it speaks about that day coming, it's giving us a warning. It's giving all the people of the world a warning. Because what it's saying is, even though on that day there'll be a great division between those who are God's people and those who aren't, those two groups are not actually right now finally fixed. Who belongs in which camp, if you like, is not at this point fully settled. And that's actually a blessing from God. That's a blessing from God because as we look to that day and we see some will fall under the judgment of God, the great news is no one needs to. No one needs to be on that side of the judgment on the last day. Even people who have rejected God, even people who have oppressed his people, even people who are not part of God's community to date, need not fall on the wrong side of God's judgment in eternity. That is to say, the whole reason that day has not come yet, the whole reason we, when the Lord Jesus came, he didn't die on the cross, rise again and wrap history up on, at that moment, was because the time has been left for people to return to God, to come back to him. That's the whole purpose of this age, a chance to square things with God, or better, to realise that God has squared things for us before that day comes. The Lord Jesus Christ came in the past, as we've already said, to die on that cross and to pay the price for the sins of the whole world, to take the world's sins into his body so that the punishment might be dealt with and the God of justice would not need to punish it in our body. He won't punish the same sin twice. That's unjust. They're punished in Jesus. They don't need to be punished in anyone who belongs to Jesus. And God has now left this time for people to respond. That time is now. And this is a great expression of God's kindness and God's mercy. It's also worth remembering, of course, isn't it, that everyone needed that. It's not as though there was uh, Israel, God's people who are holy, flawless, faultless, and would automatically be welcomed into his presence on that day, and the rest of the world who needed a saviour. 
No, of course that's not the case. Israel needed a saviour as well. For as much as there's this division between God's people and the rest of the world's people in the book of Isaiah, it's clear as well that God's people, in one way, were as much God's enemies as those other nations were. They know this too. Chapter 27, verse 7 of our passage. Speaking of the nation of Israel... Isaiah writes this, Has the Lord struck her, has the Lord struck Israel, as he struck down those who struck her? Has she been killed as those, who were, uh, as were, those were killed who killed her? That is, has God treated Israel the same as he treated the other nations? Well, the answer is no. But the very question says, surely this was possible given that Israel were in many ways people who rejected God just as the nations did. And that's exactly what you find in verse 9 of chapter 27. By this then will Jacob's guilt, Jacob being another name for the people of God, the people of Israel, by this then will Jacob's guilt be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. That is, God's going to do something that makes up not just for the sins of the world, but for the sins of who, those who have become his people. They need atonement. They need their sins removed. And in fact, God has been so kind here, because not only has he removed their sin, but as you keep reading chapter 27, verse 9, the fruit of that will be that God will make all the altar stones to be like limestone crushed to pieces. No Asherah poles or incense altars will be left standing. That is, God is not only taking away their sin, God is taking away the object of their sin. God is taking away the symbol and the memory of their sin. God is destroying everything that stood as the barrier between him and his people. So mercifully, God has not treated his people as they deserved. Their punishment has been remitted. Their marks of faithlessness have been removed. The blessing to them brings glory to God as a God not just who divides between his people and people who aren't his people, but the blessing shows that he is a God of mercy who receives as his people those who had sinned, those who had worshipped foreign gods, those who had turned their backs on him. And it's exactly that same mercy that he now leaves open to anyone, those who had not traditionally been identified as his people. Anyone can now come to him before that day arrives. God is a God of mercy, even as we approach the day of his judgment. Now, sadly and stupidly, we find that some will see and hear of this great offer of God and still reject him. Chapter 26, verses 10 and 11. When grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil. They do not regard the majesty of the Lord. Lord, your hand is lifted high 
but they do not see it. Again, this is written and stands for us as a warning, a warning for us not to reject the grace and mercy of God. And God willing, a warning for those who are not yet identifying as God's people to realise the seriousness of rejecting his grace and his favour extended to them in this time. And it's, it is serious. The judgment that will come on the last day is a judgment that is as significant as, as it is possible to have. It's a judgment that divides between eternal life and eternal death. That will be the consequence, the result of this judgment. Chapter 26, verse 14, here is the fate of those who do not turn to God seeking his grace and reconciliation. They are now dead. They live no more. Their spirits do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. Here, of course, Isaiah is writing about the old enemies of Israel and what happened to them. But they're put forward here as prototypical of the eternal judgment that any enemy of God who is not reconciled by God's grace to him will face on the last day. Of course, the contrast is the great news that stands for God's people. The great news that's open and available to all people should they receive it. Chapter 26, verse 19. But your dead bodies will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. This is the hope of God's people. Those who have died before that day will rise. It's the message of the resurrection, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have died in Christ live and will live eternally. This is the great message of the gospel. We often speak in evangelical circles of the gospel being the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's completely right. That's what we read in that creed earlier. There's no doubt about that. There's no contesting that, I don't think, if you read the scriptures. But I would add, the story of the gospel, the message of the gospel, is not the cross alone. It's the cross and the resurrection. The death of Jesus, paying the price for our sin, and the rising of Jesus to new life, showing us and pioneering for us the way into new life that we will all have on that day. It's Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Death for sin, new life for eternity. That's the gospel message. And that's the message, again, laid out for us here in Isaiah as we look forward to the future. A similar thing is captured at the end of chapter 27, verses 12 and 13. In that day... The Lord will thresh from the flowing of the Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt. That is, the Lord will make that division across all the known lands from one end to the other. And you, Israel, the true Israel of God, the people who trust in Jesus as Saviour, you will be gathered up one by one 
And in that day, a great trumpet will sound. We hear that picked up in the book of Revelation, the sounding of trumpets. Those who are perishing in Assyria and those who are exiled in Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. On the last day, from shore to shore, God's people will be gathered up one by one that they might worship God on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. Of course, we know again from the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem, that great city, that great city that is the people of God, praising God for all eternity. Now, this stuff, I think, is especially powerful for people who are suffering now and perhaps even suffering to the point of death. Those Christian sisters and brothers around the world who are persecuted and whose lives are on the line for following Jesus. But it's also powerful for all of us who have mortal bodies and all of us who live in a broken world and all of us who at some stage will face the judgment of God. Again, this is really the, the central future hope of the Christian message. On that day, all of us will face the great opportunity to rise with Christ and be counted as God's people forever. So long as right now we accept the blessing of Christ, the mercy of Christ, realise that his death was for us and his resurrection is for those who follow him into resurrection life. So, as I said right at the beginning, I think it's sometimes easy for us to be, have our heads in this moment and look back to the past. But we do need to people who look forward. We need to be people who look forward to that day, that coming day. And as we do that, there's probably a few things that that will imply. One is, of course, the most obvious thing is we just need to be prepared. We need to be on the, the right side of God's judgment. That is, we need to ensure that our trust, our hope, our faith, our commitment is in and to the Lord Jesus Christ, unambiguously, because it's through that, it's through his atoning death for us that we'll be counted right with God on that day. We need to repent and to trust Jesus as the one who bore the judgment for us. It also means, again, as I've already said, that the time is now to tell others about Jesus. The time now is now to not shy away from the future, not to be so caught up with people in what's going on today, but to help those we know in our different circles to look forward and to think about where their lives are going, where they're headed, where they're going to spend eternity. Again, that can be awkward, it can be very countercultural. It might even be something that makes relationships more difficult. But that's the call on us. I will just say, it's interesting, we, we often say when we think about telling people about Jesus, are you prepared to make friends for Jesus? And that's a great question. Are you prepared to go out of your Christian circles and invest in relationships with people who aren't believers so that you might be salt and light in their lives, bringing them the message of hope. I just want to add another twist to that and say, yes, we need to be ready to make friends for Jesus, but are we ready to lose friends for Jesus? Are we ready to lose friends for Jesus? Are we ready to say to our good friends who we meet at the school gate or at the office 
or in our neighbourhood, are we prepared to say, there's something we need to share with you about where the world's going and about that day coming? And for some people, they might decide, this is not the person I want to spend my time with anymore, if that's what they're going to talk to me about. But much as we need to be prepared to make friends for Jesus, we need to be prepared to lose friends for Jesus. And ultimately, we don't want to lose friends, we want to win people for eternity. But that might sometimes be the cost. And uh, we'll take that if there's a hope of saving some. But finally, here's the other thing I want to add, and I haven't said it as we've looked through this passage, but those of you with keen eyes and ears will have noticed it a couple of times. There's something else we need to do as we prepare for that day. It's unexpected, I think, but it makes a lot of sense too. We need to practice singing. Practice singing. Did you notice in the chapters we've been reading a couple of times the emphasis on singing? Chapter 26, the first verse. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And the chapter goes on to give its teaching really as the lyrics of a song, the words of a song. Similarly, in chapter 27, verses 2 through to 5, in that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. And then it goes on, and depending on uh, the translation or, or the interpretation of this passage, it might even be that in chapter 27, verses 2 to 5, we have God singing which might be unique in the scriptures. I'm not sure about that. But that's how much there is to celebrate on this day. That is, there's something sober, there's something heavy and serious about that day that we need to face and, and hear the scriptures on. But we also need to see this is set in the context of song. There's something that's great, worth rejoicing, celebrating, praising, lifting our voices uh, calling out to God, letting our hearts well up with emotion and for that to overflow in our voices as we set our eyes forward. So now is the time to practice your singing. Now, please don't worry. If you don't think you have a great singing voice, you're off key, you, you can't keep a beat, that's not really the point. It's not actually about being a performer. It's really not about getting your voice ready to sing. It's about getting your heart ready to sing getting your heart ready to pour out praise to our Heavenly Father, God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who saved us from our sin, who rose from the dead on that first Easter Sunday and who forged a way for us into an eternity with God so that on that day we'll be in his city, welcomed in, part of his people for eternity. I think that's a great thing to sing about. I take it we're going to sing again soon. Before we do that, let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for all you give us day by day. Our food, our clothing, our homes, our family, our friends, our church, the lives that are so blessed, even, even though there are real struggles too. Thank you for all you've given us in the past. And we look back especially to the cross and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ setting us free from sins. But thank you for what you have coming in the future. A day when the world will be put to rights, 
when justice will be delivered for all those of your people who have been mistreated and oppressed and abused and who suffer a day when they will be vindicated and lifted up. And we pray, Father, that many people would be found to belong to you on that day, including many who don't yet. And we ask that we might be your mouthpieces and voices as we call people to set their eyes on that day and to be found at peace with you through faith in the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that that day, though there's a heaviness and a seriousness about it, is also a day of celebration and rejoicing. So please make us people of praise whose hearts are lifted to you for all you've done in the past, all you're doing now, and for all that is guaranteed for the future, and all of it secured through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.